Today's readings are Genesis 27, verse 41, and Genesis 33, verses 1 to 12. They can be found on pages 27 and 33 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word from Genesis 27. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are near, then I will kill my brother Jacob. And then in Genesis 33, 1-12, Jacob looked up, and there was Esau coming with his four hundred men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Then Esau looked up and saw the women and children. Who are these with you, he asked. Jacob answered, They are the children God has graciously given your servant. Then the female servants and their children approached and bowed down. Next, Leah and her children came and bowed down. Last of all came Joseph and Rachel, and they too bowed down. Esau asked, What do you mean by all these flocks and herds I meant? To find favor in your eyes, my lord, he said. But Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. No, please, said Jacob. If I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God, now that you have received me favorably. Please accept the present that was brought to you, for God has been gracious to me, and I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. Then Esau said, Let us be on our way. I'll accompany you. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our God of grace, as we come into this um, room together, we come from all kinds of different places. Some of us would say our life uh, feels like a mess. Some of us, in a sense, uh, don't want to admit that, but that might be what we need to admit. We need to get through some layers of paving over what's really there. But we feel confident, we feel good. Some of us come with grief, some of us come with happiness, some of us come with a lot of doubt and just approaching you with questions, with valid questions. And others of us come, um, there might be faith experienced, a belief that's experienced that seems to come easier now than it ever has. And from all these different kinds of places, um, you're going to speak to us. And we ask that you meet us now in this time, that words that we would hear would be used by you and by your Holy Spirit to help us have settled hearts, awareness of our frailty, but also aware of how you are so gracious that you continue to prove to us through these stories in the Bible that you move towards frailty, you move towards messy lives. 
Sometimes when we're even running away from you, you chase after us to bring us home. Would you do that kind of work in our life today? In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, I'm always sensitive to how in so many families around the holidays, there's a lot more going on than just, you know, looking forward to some comfortable time with family and some comfort food um, and way too much of it. There's, there's certainly, I enjoy the holidays. I look forward to family time and I look forward to all of it, but there's a lot of people who don't. There's a lot of people who um, basically coming around to family is to come into the, the, um, the landmine strewn, the minefield of issues and uh, sometimes grudges and sometimes uh, feuds, envy, jealousy, the whole deal. As one person put it that I read this week, instead of becoming a jubilant celebration in cool December, Christmas brings a forced and cold get-together. Um, is that your family? Was that your experience in December? Writer Ann Hood says this, Holding grudges is a tradition in my family, passed down through the generations like heirloom china. My grandmother, Mama Rose, stopped speaking to one neighbor because of a dispute over the property line. She stopped speaking to the other neighbor because their daughters had had a fight when they were kids. I have a pair of aunts who haven't spoken since 1976 when they argued at Mama Rose's funeral. Two other aunts cut off contact after one fateful Christmas Eve. Allegedly, Aunt A snubbed Aunt B while they both stood in line at the deli to buy prosciutto. And that was that. Back in third grade, I went to a classmate's house after school, and when I came home, my mother angrily announced, you can't be friends with that girl. Her uncle did a lousy job with your grandfather's will. We won't have anything to do with that family. So Anne's conclusion, as she writes, she says, I had watched Mama Rose cut ties with loved ones. I saw the way her face later shadowed when she heard a bit of news about them or when a memory of them emerged in conversation. She was haunted by the specter of these bygone relationships. I don't want to live with that sort of regret. That's one person's take on it, but it's not just family that we have these kind of issues, these, these grudges and these needs for reconciliation. In the book Embodying Forgiveness, L. Gregory Jones, it's a, it's a fairly scholarly academic work on forgiveness. He says, he talks about a friend of his who had been betrayed by one of his coworkers. He says, was filled with venom for his unrepentant coworker this betrayal had not only ruined their relationship, but had made him find it increasingly difficult to trust anyone because the coworker continued to try to undermine him. Consequently, he did not think it possible to envision them being reconciled. And he says this is one of many examples that he runs into in his, in his studying and work on forgiveness of a Christian who is, study, who is struggling to imagine how to practice the craft of forgiveness in a situation or in relation to people where reconciliation seemed a dim prospect on a distant horizon. I think that's a great phrase for how Jacob felt as he came into this story that we're reading today. 
It's a story of beautiful reconciliation. But Jacob felt like that, I think. Reconciliation seemed a dim prospect on a distant horizon as he's finally approaching his brother Esau after being away and not speaking to each other for over 20 years. And so we go backwards. Why? Why was Jacob in the situation with Esau? They were born as twins. And when Jacob was born, he came out second. A lot of you will know some of the details of this story. He came out second, but he was grabbing the heel. He was grabbing the leg or the heel of his brother Esau, who came out first. And in the Hebrew language, there's, a, um, there's an idiom for uh, deceiver, and it, and it sounds like heel grabber. And so, and the, and the word comes out, Jacob. So he's named Jacob because he literally was grabbing the heel of his, the firstborn brother, in a sense saying, I'm going to grab, I'm going to get, I'm not going to let you get ahead of me. And that kind of goes with him throughout his life. When they're younger, they have, there's a story of him getting the birthright, which has to do with the uh, rules of, of primogenitor, primogeniture, I don't know how to say that word, um, but in ancient culture, you know, who gets more because of birth order? And so he trades his uh, birthright for a bowl of soup. To, uh, or he, he trades Esau's and gets the birthright of Esau because Esau happens to be hungry that day. Then the big, kind of the, the ground zero for the Jacob story and the deceiver kind of heel grabber story is about the blessing. When their father Isaac is old and can't see very well, Jacob pulls this masterful work um, with his mother's help to get the blessing. And there's all, you've got to go back and read it. There's, all, there's costumes involved and all this deception and scheming and the mother likes one and the father likes the other. It's a, it's a great story. Not time for it right now. But in the end, um, Esau summarizes it well when he says in chapter uh, 27, verse 36, this is Esau's exclamation in the middle of, of getting duped by the, the grabber, Jacob. He says, isn't he rightly named Jacob? This is the second time he has taken advantage of me. He took my birthright and now he's taken my blessing. Then he asked, haven't you reserved any blessing for me? So the summary then ends with a verse we read. He held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near, then I will kill my brother Jacob. Now Jacob catches that he's kind of stepped over the line here, and he takes off. So he's gone, he goes away, and, um, and then there's this great turnaround in a sense. If you're a little bit mad at Jacob at this point because of what he's doing, then he gets, he gets duped by someone else who's a grabber, and it's his uncle Laban. He pulls a number on him for Jacob wants to marry one of his daughters and they, they've got this, this attraction that apparently was incredibly powerful that Jacob says, they, they work out this thing, I'll work for you seven years to marry Rachel. And then he finds out um, waking up after his uh, wedding night and he sees that the one behind the veil was not Rachel but the, the other sister. So this birth order thing happens again back on him. And, and that's not the wife, he, that's not that girl he was interested in at all. And so then the deal gets worked out, and Laban has him another seven years before he can formally marry Rachel. So, you know, if you, it's kind of like 
this irony in these old ancient narratives of Jacob getting grabbed. And then what ends up happening is uh, they leave. There's a point where the relationship's tense between Jacob and Laban, as you can imagine. And so Jacob sort of sneaks off in the night. It's deception all the way to the end. He sneaks off at the night so that Laban doesn't know he's leaving, even though Jacob's working for Laban. And he's got his grandkids there and his daughters. Oh, he sneaks off in the night. And uh, Rachel, for some reason, she steals some valuables of Laban's. They're, they're um, idols, golden idols and so forth. And so she takes these as they're making their way out. And Laban realizes, Laban chases them down with his men, catches up to this big, now Jacob has a lot of property and a lot of herds and flocks and all this, and a lot of people and servants. And, but Laban catches up, and Laban says basically, why'd you dupe me and where are my idols? And Jacob says, I don't know about any idols. And how that whole thing ends up is Laban searches tent by tent for the idols, and get this, is just how the, the family DNA of deception and trickery and scheming. Rachel's in a tent, and she's put them in like a satchel, and she's sitting on them. So picture her robes kind of covering, and you can't see what she's sitting on. And when Laban goes into her tent, and she's sitting there, she says, pardon me, my Lord, for not standing. I'm having my period. I mean, ah. The people of God, God's favored people. I mean, you just could never make all of this up. The scheming right to the end, the grabbing. It's like you look at this family and it's like a quagmire of just grabbing and deceiving. And it goes all the way right to the end. And now Jacob knows. This is a critical point because now he's headed back to the homeland. He's gonna, he knows he has to run into Esau. And he thinks for sure now the, the grabbing is going to come full circle. And it's not going to end well for him. And you can see the anxiety as he sends ahead these droves of gifts to his brother. And he orders, I don't know if you caught this, um, how much of it was read in this part, but he ordered his people in his party in basically the order of his priority. And he put his favorites way at the end, um, Rachel and his son Joseph. He's terrified. And instead of meeting... uh, what he really deserved, he meets this embrace. He, he meets this beautiful reconciliation. Esau, unexplained, but Esau comes with embrace, with joy, with love, and it's genuine. And there's tears, and there's warmth, and there's grace, and there's invitation. And basically what's happening here in that unexplained grace and embrace is a picture a wonderful picture, a wonderful image, a foretaste, a, a sort of prophetic glimpse in the most unlikely person of Esau of the embrace and the grace and the reconciliation of God himself. And that's what I want to talk about. And there's three lessons in that. And lesson one is this. We all try to earn God's favor even though he gives it for free. We all try to do this. We all try to find favor. And notice that's the chorus in this passage that we are reading. It's all about finding favor. I want to find favor in your eyes. I want to find favor in your eyes. I want to find favor in your eyes. So he sends droves and droves of his wealth, of his livestock ahead of him as gifts, hoping this will earn the favor of Esau. That's what Jacob's doing here. I often find myself um, in conversations with people who are stuck um, doing the same thing with God, stuck sending the droves 
sending the, the good works, sending the, you know, the carefully calibrating your life and making good decisions and trying to, and, and wondering in the same kind of fear that Jacob has as he approaches his brother, wondering, what am I going to get? Am I going to really get it? What do I deserve? Have I sent enough forward? What does God think of me? How does God, how's, in the end, what's going to happen with me and God? And this sort of uncertainty underlying the relationship that has us thinking, well, the least I could do is send more his way and try, try and hope and wonder and doubt. Have I done enough? Have I sent enough good works God's way? I mean, I, I do that all the time. I fall back into that all the time. It's a, it's, a, it's a tricky but really common place to be spiritually. Is God's favor with you, oh, does it always feel like it's hanging in the balance, whether or not you can really say, I found favor in his eyes? And you have to kind of manage whether that favor is going to be found. The Bible basically says emphatically, no, that is not how it works. God works just the way Esau works here. The, it's just, it's just he, God never gives us the impression that we need to work our way to him, that we need to obey our way to his acceptance. He basically comes to us, chases us down and says, I accept you so that you might want to obey me. But for some reason we just keep getting stuck here. This quote by a pretty well-known theologian named John Stott, he said, the proud human heart is there revealed we insist on paying for what we have done. We cannot stand the humiliation of acknowledging our bankruptcy and allowing someone else to pay for it. So lesson number one is just the fact that see yourself doing what Jacob does here in this story. Sending, are you, have you been sending the droves ahead to God? The lesson number two is God's embrace really has to be experientially dramatic in order for you to believe it. You know, I just said, basically, God says, no, you don't have to send your droves towards me to finally get my acceptance. But that's a tough thing to believe, isn't it? Day in and day out. Even if you say, I'm a Christian, and I think this is how it works, it's all about grace. Day in and day out, existentially, operationally, is it an operational belief? Eh, that's tough. That needs to be an embrace of God that you experience. That's the second lesson I want to talk briefly about. And I think those, those of us who, who get stuck sending the droves forward, I think that's what's missing, is that, that true sense personally of an experience of God's embrace. One of the reasons why I tie this story so closely to God's character is because Jesus basically does the same thing. Jesus tells a story about a, another grabber who grabbed the inheritance and ran off to a far-off land. We talk about it as the prodigal son parable. And in that story, what, what comes out culturally, you know, if you kind of do the background and everything, is, is the extreme nature of the embrace um, of, of the way that the father reacts when this grabber of a son goes off and squanders everything but comes back. It's like the father is so completely inclined to welcome and to celebrate and to provide grace anytime he gets the chance. 
that's, the, that's a strong impression because when the, the son who squandered everything, grabbed everything and then squandered it, comes back, the way the parable goes is that the, um, the father calls for the expensive ring, he calls for the expensive robe, he calls for the expensive livestock to be slaughtered and for an expensive party to be thrown. And it's, it's this sense in which this father is recklessly letting go eagerly because he has back what he wants most. The grabber grabbed and took off. The father lets go and receives. But those aren't even, all those things I just listed that he did for the son aren't even the thing that really kind of grabs you, culturally speaking. What does is, the, is something that mirrors perfectly the story of Esau, this phrase, these verbs in this order, in both stories, he ran he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. It's in both stories. Esau does it and then the father in the story does it. Running, culturally, was um, not a distinguished thing to do. It wasn't a very dignified thing for a man to do um, in the middle of the day for whatever reason. This behavior was risky. This behavior was, in a way, sacrificial. But that's the embrace you need to experience. Do you picture God that way? Do you picture that God in your life that you're looking for, that you're longing for, or that you're trying to get to know is his posture towards you is running towards you, arms around you, kissing you all over. That concept even for me makes me a little, it's kind of a little personal, a little funny, kissing you all over. No, running towards you, wrapping his arms around you, kissing you all over out of just sheer joy reckless joy that he might get a chance to have you back home. And basically, if you get used to approaching God regularly, if you get used to approaching God where you do that inward look of identifying your own grabbing, how you even in, in relationships, but also with God, you've been grabbing, kind of saying, mine, mine. If you identify that, and we all have it, because we're all God's people, we're all Jacobs in a sense. If you recognize that in yourself and come recognizing that with this, the sense of humility of that, you can be assured that you'll then get used to experiencing the God who runs, embraces, and kisses you all over to welcome you home. That's the pattern of lesson two that you see. And I'm going to get to how this applies to relationships. But this is groundwork for this whole series, really. And number three, lesson number three is when God, God's favor gives you what you need, you can finally stop grabbing in all your relationships. And we're all grabbing in relationships. We're all, we're all grabbing. Sometimes it, you know, sometimes it comes out in some of these family grudge stories as, as financial. Sometimes it comes out of just snubbing and pride and respect. Sometimes it comes out of um, disregarding someone by your behavior, using someone, lying. But in the end, what are we doing most of the time? What kind of grabbing are we doing in relationships? Usually we're trying to grab and gobble up validation in our relationships. Don't you think about that? Does that apply to you in some relationship? Usually, a lot of times at the heart of the grudges that we form, some kind of validation is at stake that we've put into this relationship. 
And part of spiritual growth for you might be just turning the corner a little bit on identifying the truth that to put your validation needs onto any relationship, really, uh, is basically an illegitimate thing to do. If you have deep needs for your person to be validated, for your soul, for your identity to be validated, and you put them on that relationship, it's a weight that no relationship can bear. It'll crush any relationship. And actually it does. That's where a lot of our grudges come from, a lot of our broken relationships. We come to the relationships and we're, our hope is somehow we'll be okay. But if this person does this, then somehow that won't be okay and everything's at stake. That's a burden that'll crush any relationship. Now Christians, and this is where we turn a corner a little bit, is that Christians supposedly, we experience Jesus as the provision of a deep validation, of our deep validation. Um, and it looked like when, with Jesus, it looked like the, the weight of the load of all of our validation, when that was put on Jesus, it looked like it crushed him. And then it didn't, because he rose from the dead. And so what I'm here to say about relationships and reconciliation is that the only place you can find your personal, deep identity validation is in your relationship with God. And the order of this is crucial, that you would look first to God for your validation because he's the only one who can handle the weight of that. That is a weight. And God has said, I will take that on for you. Um, now, if you know that, if that's where you've gone, you can actually s finally stop putting the weight of validation into every relationship that you're in. You can finally differentiate and sort of disconnect. You can re-enter into relationships that need deep reconciliation. And as you re-enter, you can kind of bracket and remove that whole issue of my validation is at stake in this relationship. And if you make that switch, all, something else kind of amazing happens, because it happens with Jacob. Because Jacob, right before this story where he meets Esau, he meets someone else. And it's a great story. Again, I don't have time. But he meets someone who wrestles him in the night, and he walks away from that story, story saying, and this is right before he goes and meets Esau, he meets someone else. And he walks away from that story basically saying, I've, I've seen the face of God and lived to tell about it. He's seen the face of God and experienced favor from God. Then he turns and goes to Esau. And what does he do? He's sending these droves of his wealth forward. He spent all his life grabbing in his relationships. He spent his early life sacrificing his relationship with family to grab. And now he's letting go in order to get back. He's sacrificing what he has in order to get back the relationship. Something powerful has happened with Jacob, he's found his heart settled, his heart validated by seeing the face of God. If you want to let go of what's blocking a relationship, it's very simple, basically. And this will be kind of like an underlying foundation for the next several weeks. Look first, look primarily, look constantly to God for your validation. Let's pray.
our good God, we need your help so much as we attempt to grow and apply things spiritually. Would you help us with your Holy Spirit? Would there be the dawn of redeeming grace in our hearts, maybe for the first time or maybe for the 1,000th time, as we uh, continue to attempt to know you as this gracious, to know you as this loving. And as we go the next few weeks looking at relationships and the spiritual dynamics of them, would you help us? Would you help us in starting with the foundation of your grace and seeing the beauty of how that moves out into community and into relationships with neighbors, family, coworkers, friends, and church community? Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.